Hey, welcome to River Glen. How are we doing? Good, good. Hey, I'm Andy. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, uh, if you don't know me. And this weekend, we are wrapping up our series, You Asked For It, with the most popular question that we, that we got. Now, before we get into that question, I want to start by telling you about uh, three people, three different people. Let me tell you about Mabel. All right. Tom was a pastor, and he would go to um, nursing homes, and he would meet with the residents, and he got to know Mabel uh, one Mother's Day. Mabel was 89 years old, and when Tom met her, she was confined to a wheelchair, and she'd been that way for 25 years. She was also completely blind, and she was almost completely deaf. She'd also been battling cancer for a long time, and it had eaten away at her. That, uh, it, it made it very difficult for her to talk and to eat. And she'd been alone for many years because no one from her family uh, was around anymore. This is Mabel. She'd been bedridden for 25 years, blind, nearly deaf, battling disease, illness, and all alone. This is how she lived more than a quarter of her life. Let me tell you about Brooke. Brooke was a 14-year-old girl crazy about Jesus. In middle school, she started Bible studies. And she would use money that she raised babysitting to buy Bibles for people who didn't have any. When she was 12 years old, she wrote this essay um, about her life and what she wanted it to be. It gives you a glimpse of, of who she is. She says this, I'll live my life to the fullest. I will tell others about Christ. I will go on adventures and change the world. I'll be one of those people who go somewhere with a mission, an awesome plan, a world-changing plan. Nothing will hold me back. I'll set an example for others. I will pray for direction. I will have my life before me. I will give others the joy I have, and God will give me more joy. I will do everything God tells me to do. I will follow the footsteps of God. I'll do my best. Two years after she wrote that, she died in a car accident under the way the movies. 14, full of life, passionate, and gone. Let me tell you about Horatio. Horatio was a property owner in the late 1800s. And on the shores of uh, Lake Michigan. And in 1871, the Chicago Fire burned up most of his property and most of his wealth. So he didn't have much left. And he met a counselor, and the counselor advised him, why don't you take a trip and get away with your family for a little while? So that's what he did. He put his four daughters and his wife on a ship to England. And he had to finish up some business, and then he was going to meet them. Uh, he was going to meet them in London. Well, on November 22, 1873, a ship hit his family's ship. And in 12 minutes, uh, it, had, it had sank, it had sunk, along with his four daughters. His wife survived. She made it to England, and she sent him a message about the wreck with these two words, saved alone. Why are there people like Mabel who have to endure so much of their life through pain and suffering? Why are there stories like Brooks, a story of a young girl who has so much life, so much ahead of her that dies way too young? Why are there stories like Horatio's of parents who have to bury their children? Why? That's the question that you guys asked more than any other question. Why? If God is powerful, is there so much suffering and tragedy in this world? Why? That was the theme of a majority of the questions that we took in. All right? And I just want to, I want to uh, show my cards. This isn't an easy question. All right? This is a tough one. In fact, when Ben was picking who was going to teach each weekend, I think in his mind he was thinking, who do, who do I want to suffer through this one? Right? And he picked me. Okay? So yesterday I was thinking about this. I submitted a question. Why does Ben hate me so much? Right? But it's, it's the end of the series. I don't think I'm ever going to find out. Um, but I think it has something to do with cat jokes. Anyway, in all, in all seriousness... You know, this topic uh, hits home. Suffering is something that 
everyone will experience, right? No one, no one is immune to this. Uh, and working at a church, I'm constantly reminded of your stories, of, of things that you are going through, your pain, tragedy, loss, different struggles, suffering, right? And, and to each person, it, it could be something different. It looks different. It could be, you know, a, a student watching their parents' marriage break up. It could be bullying at school, being rejected by their peers, right? It could be a, an abusive spouse, or an alcoholic parent. It could be watching someone you love uh, endure suffering, disease, death. It could be going through those yourself. The list goes on and on and on of what I've heard. Miscarriages, abandonment, shootings, freak accidents, earthquakes, all these things all around us. If God is good, if he loves us, if he cares about his creation like the Bible says he does, then why is the world the way it is? Why is the world the way it is? My hope today is to answer this question as best as I know how, by turning to the Bible. Um, but I want to be honest right off the bat. This isn't an easy question, but it's so important to talk about. Now, when we're talking about suffering, um, we need to realize we have questions related to understanding suffering and then questions related to experiencing it and dealing with it. Right? And I think uh, today it'll, it'll help us out intellectually, understanding suffering, the world around us, God, what the Bible says. But sometimes an answer like this can come across as kind of kind of blunt, kind of cold, not, not as helpful, kind of hurtful. So if you're someone who's going through something, someone who's uh, going through some pain or some grief or some suffering, I want you to stick with me. I don't expect these answers to eliminate what, what you're feeling. I don't expect these answers to fix uh, your life, right? We have ministries for, for people who are going through things, people, um, things like Stephen Ministry, where people are trained to listen and, and talk to you about what's going on. We have Celebrate Recovery for people who have just been broken and beat up by life, right? But today is about answering this question, and I believe the Bible is going to show us a couple of things, all right? It's going to help us understand, one, it's going to help us understand God and the world around us, and it's going to help us understand where we can go to for hope when we do experience uh, suffering, pain, and tragedy. So let's start with this question. If God is powerful, if he loves us, why does he allow suffering? Right? As followers of Jesus, we would believe that God does love us. It's, it's the central message of scripture. He absolutely loves us. It makes the good news good. We would also say that he's in control. His, his will and his purposes are, are being carried out every day all around us in different ways. But from experience, we would know that suffering is a real thing. We've gone through it. What's so hard for us is to, to kind of reconcile these three things. And how do they coexist? If God is good and he loves us and if he's in control, why is there so much suffering? That's the first question. Why is there so much suffering? And it helps to understand this world that God originally created. God created a world. and We find it in the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. And it's a world that God created and he calls it good. It's a world where there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no death. It's a world where people are with God, they're talking to him, they're walking with him, they're enjoying creation. This is the world God created. And as part of this world, God gave human beings uh, choice, choice. In Genesis 2, it says this, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So the choice was choose God, obey God, or uh, go your own route. Be your own God. Choose God. Be your own God. And humans were deceived. 
And they chose to go their own way. They chose to, to, to be their own gods in their life. And this is when God's creation got really messy. This is the birth of selfishness, pride, greed, evil, and the consequence was death. So chapter one, creation. Chapter two, humans. Chapter three, death, pain, and suffering. Things escalate very quickly with God's story, right? But this is the world that we occupy right now. It's a Genesis 3 world. It's a world that's marked by rebellion. Our default attitude is to kind of push against God's purposes and his ways. We want to be our own God. We want to do our own thing, right? And the consequences of that can lead to pain, suffering, tragedy, and death, right? Flip through any newspaper, and we'll know this is true. And at the core of it is a human heart that is rebellious. We know it's true because we've been on the giving and receiving side of things, right? Think of how much damage can be done by just one person, one selfish individual who wants to be the man, who wants to be at the top. Think of, think of leaders, think of dictators in the world. Think of how much damage can be done by greed, by one greedy person who doesn't know when to say no. Think of 2008, right, the financial crisis. Think of how much damage can be done by one prideful person, one prideful youth pastor with a dodgeball. A lot of damage. <laughs> Trust me. Genesis 3, it shows us that the origin of suffering, it's not God. It's us. We're the origin. It all starts with this rebellion, this rebellion that exists in our heart. And, and the Bible would say that even creation, even physical creation, nature has been infected with this, this brokenness, this destruction, this death. Right? In Romans 8, it lays all that out, and it's crept in at every level. The world, the universe, is broken. It's broken, and it affects everyone. When talking with teens, I like to use a swimming pool analogy. All right, when I was young, I used to go to Buckner Pool in Waukesha quite a bit, and there was two rules before you got in the pool. You had to shower, and you had to use the bathroom, okay? And these rules existed so that the pool wouldn't turn into a toilet. And some mean adult, all right, convinced me that if you broke these rules, the water would like change colors around you and everyone would know what's going on. And it scarred me for life. I still struggle with going into pools. But anyway, it's a different, it's a different sermon. Um, here's the deal though, right? If someone were in a pool and they broke the rules, right? They dirtied up the water. Um, who does that affect? Them? No, Everyone. Right? Maybe not at first, but eventually that spreads everywhere. Even someone who comes in the pool later, until that water is done away with, it is tainted. It is tainted. Why is there so much suffering in our world? Because a long time ago, people dirtied up creation. They chose to go their own route, and we do the same thing. And it affects everyone. Right? So humans bear the ultimate responsibility for how the world came to be this way which means we shouldn't really think of this as a why did God do this to me question. Really, we should think of this as, well, why does God allow it? Right? If he's in charge, why does he allow it? That's a fair question. Why do we have to experience it? If God set out to create this amazing world and it got ruined, it got broken, then why, why is it still going on? Right? Why doesn't he stop it? And this is where things get pretty difficult for us because if God loves us and if he's in control and if there's suffering, then we have to realize, well, then it might exist for a purpose. There must be a reason. There must be some kind of purpose behind it, right? God might not cause these things to happen, but he's allowing them to happen for some reason. Now, let's be honest. I don't, I don't think we like to believe that purpose plays some kind of role in our life. 
that there's some kind of meaning to it, that it should be there for a reason. And it's, it's mainly because we're influenced by uh, our culture, our society. Right? In our culture, our Western culture, we're very secular. And, and, and secularism or materialism is, is a worldview. It's a belief that everything that exists um, is physical and that's it. So there's no afterlife. There's no spiritual side to the world, right? It's just physical life and everything that you experience in life is it. That's all that matters. And so with that mindset and that belief, all that matters is experiencing as much good as possible uh, before you die. And so what, what a good life becomes then is comfort, success, health, wealth, experiencing as much as we can. So in this worldview, suffering then becomes an obstacle. It becomes a hindrance, right? It gets in the way of us uh, fulfilling an ultimate or, or a really good life. And so if you were to ask like a, a secular philosopher, what's the meaning of purpose? They would say there is no meaning to purpose. Avoid it, right? Our culture, our society is very much ingrained with, with this kind of belief. Even as Christians, we are, we are um, uh, influenced by it, Right? But the Bible shows us in a very different view of suffering. The Bible would show us that suffering has a role to play. It has a purpose. And that's the question. What is the purpose that suffering can play? Now, the questions that came in, they were kind of divided into two groups. Some people wanted to know, why did God allow this to happen to me? And it's very specific things. And other questions were more, why is the world the way it is? Why is there suffering in the world? Why does it exist? Right, so let's look at specific situations. What does the Bible have to say about certain things you go through, certain hurts, certain pains? Does the Bible have answers and reasons for everything that we go through? And the short answer is not really. Right, if you were to read through the Bible, you wouldn't find answers to every situation and every scenario that you go through in life, which means it's a mystery. It means it's a mystery to the way God operates. Right, so why is there suffering in the world? first possibility? We don't know. We don't know. But God does offer an explanation for why he doesn't give all the answers. All right, when you think of people in the Bible who had to endure suffering and, and so much loss, one guy stands out. His name is Job. Job uh, endured horrible amounts of suffering. His, whole f uh, his children were wiped out instantaneously. His, his wealth was taken away from him. His health was taken away from him. And all that he's really left with is a wife who says, give up and die. Great support. And then he's also got these friends that come and start basically giving him bad advice. They're, they're like, hey, Job, if you're going through all this pain and suffering, it must be your fault. God's trying to punish you and tell you something, right? And he's like, I didn't do anything, though. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And so he questions God, and he brings these questions to God. Why me? Why is this happening to me? I didn't deserve this. And God answers them, and we get, a, we get a peek at the conversation that Job and God had. And here's what God says. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. And then he just starts asking questions like, where were you when I created everything, when I invented light? When I invented the atom, when I made life, where were you? Were you, were you there? Do you, do you know how I did that? Right? He asked, he asked Job his own question. Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You're God's critic, but do you have the answers? Job replies, 
You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I, and I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. Now, I'm guessing this isn't, one, uh, and it isn't anyone's like, favorite passage in the Bible. It's on a T-shirt. It's on your coffee mug, right? Um, so let's talk about this. People read this, and it comes across as kind of like this harsh rebuke, like God is like, how dare you bow down? Right, like this mean God and stuff like that. I think it comes across as stern, but I don't think it's hateful. I think it's tough love. I think this is loving. I think Job is in the Bible because God loves us and he wants to tell us something and he wants us to understand something extremely important and it's this. We can't understand everything. We are limited in what we can understand. If God is God, if he's truly God, right, the way we think a God should be, he should be wiser, he should be smarter, he should be more complex. He should be beyond our full understanding, beyond our full comprehension, right? We're, we're finite in our thinking. He's, he's infinite. He's God. And I like to imagine this conversation between God and Job more like a father talking to his young son. Job, how could I possibly explain the way I work to you? I made everything. I made creation. I made life. How do I get across to you and your mind how I operate and what I'm doing, right? Let's put this in perspective. Imagine there's a family with a lot of financial issues going on. They have, they have a lot of debt and the economy is so-so and dad's job is at risk because his company just went through a merger, right? And they're also expecting a child, so mom's going to be on maternity leave and there's all these factors going on. So what they decide to do is they say, you know what, we ought to cut our costs big time. Cut our expenses and then we'll save some money and we'll pay off our debt and that will leave us in a better situation, right, financially. That's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. And so in the midst of cutting costs and cutting their expenses, they, they ditch cable, which means they get rid of Nickelodeon, which means they get rid of SpongeBob SquarePants and their four-year-old has a meltdown. SpongeBob, where is it? Why did you take him away from me? Well, I mean, you know, my job's at risk in the economy. Let me tell you about the S&P 500. Where's SpongeBob, right? Like, how on earth are we going to explain to a four-year-old financial <laughs> stresses and situations and the economy and everything going on? Four-year-olds can't understand that. They just want to know why. There is a limit to what you and I will understand, right? Imagine an infinite creator now in us and everything going on. We're limited. We're limited. So instead of giving us answers, basically the message from God is, trust me. Trust me. Trust that I, a God who loves you, who's in control, who's wise, who's infinite, who's beyond your understanding, who's beyond your comprehension, trust that I love you, that I'm in charge, and that I am uh, a God worthy of, of just respecting and honoring and listening to, I love you, trust me. That's the message we kind of get from Job. And so why is there so much, why is there suffering? Why does God allow it? We don't know because we can't know. Now, although it's clear that we're, we might not understand a bunch of different things that happen in our life, right? I do think that the Bible gives us a picture of uh, general purposes that God can do through suffering and through pain. Right? Author C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, he said this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. 
It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, meaning sometimes God might allow suffering to wake us up, to get our attention. So I, I think we see this most clearly by looking at the history of God and his people, Israel, right? God starts this country, and, and they get into this habit of, of idolatry, of rebellion. And we see it clearly in the book of Judges. Early on, this is what it says in Judges. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot about their God, and they served other gods. Israel's rebellion is almost always linked to idolatry, uh, them worshiping something more than God, loving something more than God. So they forgot about him, and they ran to other things in life. And this is a huge no-no, right? And in the, in the Ten Commandments, the first two are all about this. And so this is huge. This is a big deal, right? They're, they're worshiping something else. They're not loving God. They've forgotten about him. And so they fall into this habit. And what God would do in all these instances is he would allow other countries, other nations to come in to to defeat them, to rule them, to hold them as slaves, to hold them as slaves. He would allow Israel to suffer. And what ends up happening is they turn back to God and they call out to him. A couple verses later it says, but when the people of Israel cried out to God, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people and then saved them. So they, they cry out to God, he raises someone up and then he saves them. Right? And then they return to worshiping God. God uses slavery, pain, suffering to wake them up so that they would turn back to him. Right? Why? Because he loves them. Because he loves them. You see, to worship anything else besides God is only going to lead to disappointment and hopelessness. If we were created to worship God and be with him in a relationship and, and know him, then to run to anything else is pointless. It's only going to lead to despair. Right? So sometimes God has to get our attention. He has to wake us up because we love something way too much, because we've wandered way too far, because we're distracted by other things, because we forgot about him. And I don't think this is all situations, but I do think, is it beyond, uh, we can ask ourselves, is it beyond a loving God to, to cause some or to allow some short-term hurt, suffering, pain to kind of invade our life so that we'd wake up? so that we might turn back to him, so that we might run back to him, we might end up in a relationship with him, our eternity might be changed. I think a loving God might allow that, right? Think about it. If, if, if we polled everyone here, I doubt the majority of us would say we ended up here because life was perfect, Right? Think about it. At one point in your life, if you, if let's say you walked away from God or you left the church or maybe you didn't even grow up in church, whatever it is, I doubt you ended up back here because everything just kind of magically went your way. Oh, it's perfect. Let's go to church, right? I doubt it. What I've seen from people I know, including myself, is sometimes things have to get messy. And it makes you ask the hard question. And it wakes you up and you start going, what is the point? Is there anything better than this? Where is hope in this world? What do I do? Life beats us up. It breaks us down. And we get to a point, just like the Israelites, where there is nothing to turn to except God. Because God loves us and he desires to be in a relationship with us. He's going to bring us to a point where, where there's nothing left. There's only him, and it brings us back to him. That's what a loving father does. This is a discipline. This isn't anger. This isn't punishment. 
This is about allowing something to upset the balance, upset the status quo, wake us up to something so much better, so much better, right? So why is there suffering? Maybe to get our attention. Third, God uses suffering to transform who we are. He uses suffering to transform the person that we are, who we ought to become, right? Think of people who, who go through significant physical changes, right? They're trying to maybe lose some weight. They're trying to bulk up to look more like me, whatever it is. And there's this, I don't know why you're laughing. Um, everyone laughs at that. Um, there's some pain involved in this, right? There's some short-term suffering you got to go through if you want to change uh, the way your body looks, the way, the way you are, right? Change is difficult. It requires pain. It requires uh, hurt. And God, he uses, he uses it because he loves us and he longs to transform us into who we ought to be. He can use that to change us. Right? The verse that people always run to um, when they, they hear someone's going through something or something bad is happening, this verse that people like to use is Romans 8.28. And, and it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Right? Part of that verse was actually in a song that we were singing before. Right? But, but what can happen sometimes is we hear someone's going through something, we, we, you know, we give them that verse and we're like, it's all going to work out in the end, brother. Hallelujah. Praise God for your car accident, right? Like, I don't know, it's like a southern thing when I, I don't know, I don't know why I read the Bible as a southerner. But anyway, um, it's all going to work out in the end for your good, all right? That can come across as kind of a slap in the face, a little blunt. Why? Because when we're going through hurt and pain and suffering, it doesn't feel very good, doesn't look very good, right? The problem is how we think of good. Right? Because of the culture and the society we've grown up, how do we think of good? Comfortable, safe, health, wealth, experiencing as much life and, and goodness as possible. That's how we think of good. Right? So how on earth could suffering and all the things that are going on in our life lead to that? Well, it, it really doesn't. So what does God mean when he's talking about good for you? Well, the next verse kind of lays this out. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The key phrase in that verse is to be conformed to the image of his son, right? What this means is that God is carrying out his purpose for our life, for our good, and that means he's trying to make us to be more like Jesus. He's trying to transform us to be more like his son, so let's kind of sum this up in a way that makes a little more sense. For those whom love God, for, for followers of Jesus, right, God is carrying out his purposes for your ultimate good to become like Jesus. God knew long ago what the end goal was, right? And so what he did is he's, he's put us on a path that would lead to that transformation. He's put us on a path that might lead to transformation. How does our society define good, comfortable, healthy, wealthy, safe, successful, full of all this great stuff? How does God define good? Becoming like Jesus. Two totally different things. And in order to accomplish this, God, he's put us on a path and he might allow things to come across that path into our journey through life that would lead to this goal of transformation and becoming like Jesus and that path, it could include anything that God knows might help us to change. It could include pain. could include some hurt. could include some suffering, right? 
Why? Because he loves us and he longs to make us into something new and better. Right? He wants to change us. So why, if God is powerful, does he allow suffering and tragedy in this world? Well, first, suffering and tragedy huh, didn't originate with God. It originated with sin and rebellion, people. But God might allow it to, to wake us up, to get our attention because we've wandered, because we're distracted, because he's not the real God in our life. Or he might use it to mold us and shape us into someone better than who we are right now. Or we just may never know. That's the answer, right? Now, I'm going to be honest. Like, those are the answers, and I, I, I understand it, and I know it, and I like to believe I believe it, right? But when things go wrong for me or people I know or people I'm close to, I have another question that I want to ask. Why doesn't God do something about it? Why doesn't he do something about it? And the truth is he did do something about it. He did do something about it. God sent his son into the world, a world that had rejected him and turned its back on him, and he sent his son into it. Why? Because he loves us. And Jesus, he lived in this world, and he experienced everything we experience. So he experienced pain, suffering, abandonment, rejection, even death. And not just any death, a death reserved for criminals. So it was slow, and it was painful, and it was torturous. Right? Why? Because he loves us. And Jesus endured the worst of the worst. He endured, he endured separation from his father. Separation from his father so that we, if we would turn to him and believe in him, we wouldn't have to endure suffering or we wouldn't have to endure separation, eternal separation from the father. Why? Because he loves us. God loves us. He did do something. He did do something, right? You see, the death of Jesus it's the death of sin. It's the death of brokenness. And the resurrection of Jesus, it's the death of death. And it's the birth of hope. Jesus shows us what hope looks like. He came into our world. He suffered, looked horrible, looked hopeless to everyone involved, but it turned out good. It turned out great. And that's our future. That is our future if you believe in him, trust in him, and follow him. This is our hope. That even though right now things are bad and dark and they feel hopeless, it's going to turn out good, right? There is going to be a time when God says everything is good once more. It's not yet. He's not done yet. But there will be a time. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is something so much better waiting for us. So much better. But in order for this hope to really take root in your life, all this understanding has to become belief. It has to affect you some way. It has to affect the way you live. It has to affect uh, how you trust God. Right? You have to believe that God is for you, that he loves you. He is not against you. He is not uh, hurting you. He, he is for you. He loves you. He's a good father. Right? And there is something so much better waiting for you. Waiting for you. But to be honest, trusting in Jesus, I, I, want, you to, I want to be real. Trusting Jesus, it doesn't change your past. It doesn't change what you experience necessarily. It doesn't change uh, how you feel. It doesn't eliminate your pain or your grief. It doesn't change those things. But faith, you know what it changes? It changes you. Faith changes you. It changes the way you view your past. It changes the way you view your present. 
changes the way you view your future. Faith changes you. Faith changed uh, Mabel and Brooke and Horatio. Mabel, right? Remember, remember? She's 89 years old. She's bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, fighting cancer, all alone. Why does she have to endure so much of this? When Tom met her, he got to know her. And he asked her, what do you think about all day as you sit here? And she says this, I think about Jesus. I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life. I'm one of these kind of people who's mostly satisfied. A lot of folks think I'm old-fashioned. I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. Why are there people like Mabel who have to endure so much suffering? I don't know. But what I do know is that at the end of her life, after 25 years of this, she had a better perspective than a lot of healthy people, and she loved Jesus. Brooke, 14 years old, crazy about Jesus, ready to change the world, right? Why did she have to die so young? I don't know. But what I do know is that the impact that she wanted to make, it still happened. There was a memorial service for her, and 1,500 people showed up. Right? And they, they told stories about her, her love for God and how it affected them and poems that she wrote them. Right? And, and the pastor shared the gospel that day and 200 of her classmates gave their lives to Christ. Right? The impact that Brooke believed God was going to do through her life, it still happened. Even though she was gone, God still used her and her story to change lives. She did more in 14 years than most of us will. Right? Why did Horatio have to suffer the loss of his four daughters? I don't know. But what I do know is it didn't stop him from worshiping God. He got on a boat, and he headed out to where his daughters had drowned. And he asked the captain to stop and drop anchor right over that spot. And so that's what they did. And they dropped anchor. They stopped over the point where his daughters had died. And he went to the bottom of the boat, and he wrote one of the one of the best hymns of all time. This is how it goes. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. See, faith in Jesus is what makes these stories different. Right? We don't always know why. We don't know um, or understand, but what we do know is that God loves us, that he's for us, that he's working, and that there is something so much better out there for us, waiting for us. Faith in Jesus, knowing who he is, God in the flesh, what he came here to do, die for us, proves that God loves us, and it reminds us, and it gives us hope that when things look horrible now, there is something. There's something so much better. God, God he loves us. He is working, right? And there's something better for us. That's the hope that comes through Jesus. And this is the hope that we're going to remember uh, together as we take communion. We're going to take communion. We're going to sing some songs, right? And, and communion is for, for anyone who's a follower of Jesus. And, and what we do is we take the bread and we take the juice and we take it in remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. He took all the sin, he took all the brokenness, and it died with him, right? And then he, he rose. That's our hope.
That's our hope. And we're going to remember this, and we're going to remember that someday we're going to be in a world with people like Mabel and people like Brooke and people like Horatio. We're going to be in a world that God calls good. That's the hope. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for, uh, we thank you for Jesus. He is our hope. Nothing else compares. Nothing else reminds us how loved we are besides him. Nothing compares to what you have in store for us. I just ask that we, we trust you more, we follow you, we believe in you. When things are hard, that you know, we would accept that we, we can't understand as frustrating as it is. You're a good father, though, and you love us. And we just ask you to help us trust, help us believe, and help us endure until we get to that point where we can be with you and everything is good. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.